outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 118. And today, we're talking about my Montana public land whitetail adventure. But I gotta warn you, this is not our best sounding audio episode. I'm in Montana. Dan was having technical difficulties, so please bear with us on this one and enjoy. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sick Gear. Today is going to be a little bit different podcast than usual because we don't have a guest and I'm not at home. I'm in Montana and I, as I just told Dan, I've been driving around town trying to find a building that I can pull up next to and poach some Wi-Fi from. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm recording from my truck behind a coffee shop. <laughs> so well, like I said, I'm in Montana and uh, as you know, Dan, I've got some interesting stories to share today. Hey man. I'm, uh, like I said, I'm extremely jealous of you. Um, it's to the point now where I, I think I hate you, but I really, <laughs> I really don't hate you. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> and I'm sorry that I inspire those feelings, but, uh, it's purely jealousy. Oh man. I, uh, it's been pretty cool out here. Been out here in Montana the last like five, six, five days or something like that now. And have had a pretty epic adventure. Um, man, it's been fun. And I, I've got a lot of stories I want to tell. I want to tell everyone about how this hunt has gone, you know, that we've been talking about for a few months now, kind of building up to this trip. Um, but before we get to that, I guess, really quickly, I want to take our little break here that we typically have to thank our partners at Sika Gear, who have been a longtime supporter of this podcast. And taking a break from our usual Sika story segment want to mention the Diverge Photo Contest that Sitka just launched a little bit ago, which is their annual photo contest where they're looking for the most epic, raw, emotional, compelling, super unique hunting photos that you can put together. And they are, you know, then compiling all these pictures and then allowing us, the tribe members, to vote on which ones we think, you know, are the the absolute best later this year. So that contest just launched. If you want to submit your photos, you can do that at sitkagear.com slash diverge. And they're giving away some pretty sweet prizes to the winners of those contests and really to even participants. They're giving away Sitka Gear hats, a bunch of different types of Sitka Gear, uh, GoPros, the opportunity to have your pictures published in print, and even an all-expenses-paid trip to come here to Bozeman, Montana. So sitkagear.com slash diverge to get more details or to submit your own photos. And, uh, and with that, now 
back to what's new in our whitetail world, Dan. Um, like I said, I want to talk about my Montana trip, but before that, is there anything new in your whitetail world? We haven't got to catch up in a while. Well, uh, I'm still married, so <laughs> that that means that uh, it's probably not my whitetail world is not going as good as I want it. But uh, <laughs> oh, you know, we we really need to get the, her on the podcast one of these days. Right, right, where she can uh, shit talk on me for about an hour. That'd be, be great listening. <laughs> it'd be really entertaining for all of us. <laughs> no, no, she, I love her to death. Uh, she puts up with my BS, and uh, uh, that's a that's a good thing. But as far as on on my end here in Iowa, um, I got four, four out of my seven tree stands hung. Took me eight hours to put up four tree stands. I my food plot that I planted, it's coming up. My brassicas are coming up. Nice. Uh, I got my uh, my. A scrape tree. It's an old fence post that was part of the fence that I tore down. I left it up, drilled some holes in it, stuffed some branches in. I got a scrape tree. And uh, now I'm to that period where uh, I just leave my properties alone until October. It's exciting knowing it's done and yep. just need the final countdown now, right? Right, right. It's uh, one of those where I want to go out, I want to check my trail cameras, but uh, it's it's best just to let them soak until that uh, the next time that I'm out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a similar situation, as you know. You know, I've got all my stuff done on my different properties. Um, but the one thing different for me is that I can't remember if I told you this or not, but I got a wireless trail camera for the first time. Did we talk about this already? Um, I think you mentioned the last time that you were going to get one, but you, I, since then I haven't heard anything about it. Okay, yeah. So so I got one, uh, one of the Bushnell wireless cams, and I set that up on my main Michigan property on one of my food plots and where I put up one, I put it kind of similar to you. I put up a fake scrape tree in the middle of that food plot to give me, you know, and maybe a little bit better chance at a shot in that plot. And then also to have my camera pointed at, so I get some pictures of deer in there. Um, right. So I put the wireless camera there because like you, I don't want to go into my property at all in September. And really I don't want to go to that area to hunt at all until either the rut or when I get daylight pictures of a mature buck out there. In the past, I was okay. never able to tell that, you know, unless I actually went in there and checked a camera. But now that I've got this wireless camera, I can tell, you know, from home. So I'm pretty pumped. I'm really pumped about that. Um, it's a good news, bad news situation, though, because I've been getting all these pictures now on my phone, and I, I'm addicted to it. But I got some bad news today. Um, my scrape tree that I installed, I didn't do a good enough job of, of getting it secured in there <laughs> because over the past few days, I've noticed it's spinning in circles. So stuff's either the wind is blowing it or deer are pushing it or different things because I can tell that the branches are pointed in a different direction in every photo. And then, and then today I saw it has now been pushed over at like a 45 degree angle. So it's at a re- really weird tilt now. It's not maybe not quite a 45, so it's, it's still usable. If yeah. it doesn't move anymore, but I worry, <laughs> you know, one bad storm or one angry buck and that thing's going to be on the ground. So knowing that I kind of want to go right. in there and fix it, but at the same time, I don't want to go in there because the whole point has been not to go in there. So I don't know, man, I'm kind of bummed that I, and I knew it, you know, I actually, when I did it, I knew that I didn't dig the hole deep enough and I just, I got, I struck some really hard ground and I was like, ah, this is good enough, Yeah, but I probably should have just kept going. Um, cause now yeah. I'm, now I'm dealing yeah. with this stuff. If something rips my scrape tree out of the ground, I'd be very, very impressed. Well, this is Iowa. That's right. It is. It is Iowa. You could have a big buck do some crazy things. Um, so that's about it on your set, huh? Yeah. It's a, I mean, like I said, I've just been kind of, you know, I wanted to, I want to go back to the property and set up maybe a couple more tree stands, but I just think, you know, I'm that, I don't know about you, but. I set up two, three, four tree stands that I know I'm going to hunt during the rut because they are historically good spots. But then I've had uh, tree stands in the past where I thought I'd set up for maybe early season spots, and then I've never hunted them. So I'm doing a run and gun right off the bat anyway. So I figured, you know what? What the hell? I like doing it. I'll just do. I'll just you know jump in and start doing run and guns uh, first week of October. There you go. Well, it's it's. Uh... It's a tactic that works. If you're yeah. if you're good at getting in there quietly and setting your stand up quickly without making a commotion, it really works. Um, and that's kind of a good segue into my hunt here in Montana because I've been running and gunning it every day of the hunt so far. 
So should we talk about this? Right. Yes. Yes. Let's uh, talk about your trip to Montana that I'm extremely jealous about. Yeah. So I want to kind of do a little role reversal here, Dan, and I want to let you take the host reins. And I'm going to okay. you play the host. I play the uh, the guest on the show because uh, you always do a nice okay. job of, of profiling hunters on your podcast. Um, so, gotcha. you know, we've talked a little bit about how I was planning for this Montana hunt, you know, in some past episodes. Um, so I guess knowing that context, you know how I planned it a little bit. Now you're the host. Take it away. What do you want to know about this past hunt and what's happened here so far? Well, let's do a little let's take a step back. And, you know, you did a lot of research into where you were going to hunt and uh, you were out there this you know this summer did you visit the spot that you were hunting this summer did yeah. you scout yeah so so as you know you know i chose to hunt montana this year in part because right i was already going to be spending a month out here uh on kind of my workcation um so i thought i'd have an opportunity to scout so yes i i showed up here in montana with a game plan um of a few places i wanted to try to scout I didn't get to do as much scouting as I thought I was going to be able to do um, because of some issues that we've talked about a little bit in the past, but I'll quickly review what I did. You know, step one, I looked at kind of like a one to one and a half hour radius around where I was staying here in kind of west central Montana and was looking for river bottom ground. So I was looking for these valleys where there's a river running through the middle of it and there's good cover because that's where these whitetails seem to live the most in states like this, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, etc. So I was looking for areas like that and then I was looking for public land within those valleys. So I found a couple different valleys where that was the case and I started driving out there. So first week in July, I headed out to one of these valleys and just started doing some evening drives. I think I did three evening drives in one valley um, to check out this river bottom ground and there's two pieces excuse me got the hiccups there was two pieces of land that's in montana's block management program which makes private land uh, available to hunters so i was scoping out those areas in the surrounding region um, and that's kind of where i was going to focus until I don't know, late July, I found out that some of these properties might not actually be open to public anymore. So at that point, I was like, well, crap, all this scouting could be for nothing, and I'm down to, like, my final week out here. I need to have some other kind of game plan. Um, So I started doing more research, looking at different maps, looking at different areas, and i got to be honest um, and give a big thank you to our friend Randy Newberg because... I went and had coffee with him and told him, hey, you know, I'm kind of up in the air again about some of these different regions. Um, Is there any specific areas you might, you know, or general areas you might think I should do some new scouting in? And he pointed out a couple different new river areas that I had not looked at before that were farther away. Um, But he said, hey, these might be worth scoping out. So I took him up on that, and I decided that last week I was here to go check out one of these other areas. This was like an hour and 45 minutes, almost two hours away from where I was staying. But I was like, ah, I got I to gotta find a new area. Last week I'm out there, I drive out to this new region, and right away when I get to this river bottom area way out there, I start seeing a lot of deer and a lot of good deer, um, better than I'd seen in the, in the other areas I'd been scouting. So after night number one, and I think we talked about this this summer, like I was pretty stoked. I found I found my region, the spot. The next night I went back out because there was a piece of public land that I wanted to watch specifically. So I drove out the second night, watched it, and then I hopped out of the truck and just did like a 100-yard walk along the edge of this cover just to like see it a little bit. And then that was it. Then I had to go home like two days later. So that was the extent of scouting I got to do out here in Montana. One night drive-by, and then one night drive-by, and then a quick 100-yard walk along the edge of it. That is all I had. Um, That takes me to August. I then, you know, okay, based on the fact that this one little piece, I really liked this little piece, and it had a neighboring piece of block management land that I thought was going to be open to public. Now, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, At the end of August, I found out that was no longer public. So now I just had a small piece of public next to this private, which had all the food, but I can hunt the cover next to it still. So that was my game plan coming into this. I thought, okay, I'm going to show up and I'm going to try to hunt this little piece of public next to the food. And if, you know, we're going to see how that goes. And my game plan was, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, um, well, I guess, what do you want to know next? That's, that's the scouting I did leading up to this. So... 
you did you, you got your scouting done and then when did you realize that when you came back here because you 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 came back for the hunt and but then you realized some things had changed right yeah so and and for the listeners just so you know dan sounds a little different now because we had to just switch things up we had some bad service issues so dan's on his phone now i'm on my computer now so to your question dan um you know like i just said the piece but part of the public land that I thought I was going to be a hunt now I cannot hunt anymore so I now was showing up to hunt a smaller okay. piece and because of that I did have a backup okay. plan kind of I was just going to say so so you know that that uh, property kind of fell through for you you kind of had a little bit of a backup plan um by losing that piece of property did it mess things up big time for you or were were you pretty comfortable with going into that smaller piece of that of that public ground and uh making a go at it i was a little more nervous just because the original piece had all the food on it so i knew like i had thought okay "Okay, i'm gonna go in there and i'm gonna be able to hunt this food easy and these bucks and all these deer were coming out to feed into this i assumed they'd be doing it pretty consistently um my worry was that now that all I could hunt was the cover, my question to myself was, can I get into that without spooking deer in the afternoon? That's what I didn't know. Um, right. so, be- so because of yeah. that, I did a little more research. I found a couple other properties within about a 20-minute drive, um, some block management, some other, that I could hunt if I had to. So I said, okay, I'm going to go in there the first night or two, hunt this original property, and observe. I'm going to play it safe and observe, see what I see. And if I can hunt it, and if I see some quality bucks, or if I see deer enough, then I'll keep hunting here. But if not, after the first two nights, then I'm going to go explore these other two areas. You know, I, I didn't, given the fact I only had seven days to hunt, I couldn't devote too much time to any one spot unless I knew it could produce. So the plan for night number one was to just get to the edge of this cover, between the food and the cover, in that little transition area, try not to go in too far because I didn't know where they're bedded, and just observe. So that that was my game plan okay. when I showed up on uh, I showed up Saturday afternoon with that plan. So night number one, I mean, you got uh, well before that, you get to this this public ground that you had scouted out. Did you run into any other hunters out there? So at first, no. Um, I pulled up to the parking lot area kind of thing, and there was no one else there. There was a little campground there where I was planning on staying. And there were a bunch of other hunters at the campground, but I talked to them and they were elk hunters. So I was feeling pretty good. I parked my truck, got all situated, and started hiking in. And I just took my sweet time getting in there. And I, I had already, you know, studied my maps, and I kind of located this first section of trees I thought I could get to with minimal intrusion, but that would give me a good view of both this kind of covery area. It's kind of some, a mix of, like, willows and brush and grass. That's where these deer are bedded, and some cottonwood trees. And then I could also see this alfalfa field to my east. So I snuck in there, and I brought a stand and sticks with me, and I got that tree stand hung up. I cut a few shooting lanes. It's quite not, not really shooting lanes. It was just the tree I was sitting in. Um, so I just kind of opened up a couple holes in the tree I was hunting so I could get some shots. Uh, but as I was doing that, another vehicle pulled in uh, next to mine, and a couple bow hunters stepped out of there. Um, so I'll kind of just walk you through how the rest of that first night went. So I, so I got up there in the tree, saw these other guys. And I'm like, ah, crap. You know, I really hope they're not going to come over here by me. But as I'm, you know, kind of moaning and groaning in my head about this, here comes some deer out of the cover heading towards the field. Um, and then it just kept going and going over the next like hour and a half doe doe little buck little buck doe doe little buck lots of deer started piling out and i was feeling pretty good because my little observation stand that i thought would be a good observation stand and also might have a chance of seeing some bucks because there's a number of trails that did come within range there um well i had picked a pretty decent spot because i was seeing a lot of deer and some of them were close um maybe 30 percent of the deer were within shooting range um and a larger portion maybe were a little bit farther south of me Um, but I was feeling good about, you know, the fact that it had only been like an hour and a half of hunting and I was seeing all these deer, um, just as we started getting to the point where maybe I thought, you know, a buck, a bigger buck might be coming through because it was maybe an hour and a half before dark. Now, one of these hunters, one of these hunters comes walking through and he was hunting on the ground, just kind of walking around with his bow and arrow. And he spooked a bunch of deer and walked to within Uh, like uh. 50 yards of me, maybe. And then he saw me up in the tree. I just kind of waved at him. And then I don't know if he saw a deer or something because he saw me 
And then he knelt down and faced the opposite direction of me and just sat there looking for like 15 minutes right in front of me. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. I, I just kind of assumed that there must be a deer on the other side of this brush that I can't see. And he's like, he's going to wait it out and try to shoot this deer in front of me. And finally that didn't work out, I guess, because like 15 minutes later he got up and, and walked out. Um, so I was kind of bummed about that. You know, I was hoping one of the things I was really hoping given this whole Montana idea was that being so far away from most city centers and being in an area where whitetail hunting is not nearly as popular, I was thinking I could have maybe a, a relatively pressure-free public land hunt, which is rare. Um, yeah. but, but you know, it didn't, didn't quite work out. So those guys kind of screwed up my night number one hunt, but still about an hour after they disappeared, after those guys left, um, couple young two-year-olds 10 pointers or maybe one was an eight one of those 10 they came walking right by me and saw a few more deer and then just towards last light i spun around and could look in these fields behind me and a little farther south of me just through some little holes in the leaves i was able to spot a couple shooter bucks maybe 150 yards out in the field south and east of me so i felt really good just now describe describe a second what a shooter buck in montana is for those listeners well, you know, for me, it was a minimum of a three-year-old, hopefully older, but a minimum of a three-year-old buck, um, and just, just a nice representative buck. I didn't go into this trying to shoot a giant or setting some kind right. of, like, super high standards. Um, I was going to this thinking, hey, this is going to be a pretty big challenge, you know, going into a totally new state, super far from home, public land, camping out of my truck. Right. Um, so I just wanted to kill a a buck that was going to make me happy and that was relatively mature. Um, so that was what I was shooting for. Um, so what I saw out there in that field were a couple bucks that had nice big solid bodies. So it told me, yeah, these are mature deer and you know, decent enough headgear, um, that it would like caught your yeah. attention. Um, probably one twenties, one thirties, somewhere around that range. So I was like, Ooh, that's a nice buck, big bodies. Sweet. That, that, that'll make me happy on this hunt. So perfect. So yeah, so that's what I saw. And that let me know, okay, there's at least a couple quality bucks in the area that are worth hunting. And, you know, they're within, you know, somewhere within this area. They, they had to have come off the public land somewhere because of the direction they were walking and where I saw them. So I knew, you know, it, maybe it wasn't right where I was hunting today, but I knew that there were bucks that I could possibly hunt. So that night hunt ended. I snuck out and I said, okay, I've got to, I've got to make an adjustment tomorrow. But that was what night number one looked like. Um, so... Do you want me to move on to night number two, or do you, do you have any questions about that hunt? Well, my, my question is, did you hunt the next morning, or were you strictly hunting afternoons? Yeah, so my plan was to not hunt the first couple mornings um, because I, I had a really good situation for evening hunts. Mornings, I felt less confident, so I thought, okay, hunt the first few days, just the evenings, play it a little bit safe, figure out how the deer are using this area, where they're bedded, when they're coming back to bed, all that stuff. And then if you figure it out and you think you can hunt mornings, then I would do that the last like four or five days. But the first couple of days I was going to play it a little bit safe and just try to learn. So also the other thing to keep in mind is that right towards the end of my first night's hunt, it started to rain and it was on pace to just keep raining for the next two days almost. So it started raining that night and the next morning I woke up and it was raining like crazy. And so my plan was to just hop in my truck. Well, <laughs> hop out of the back of my truck into the front of my truck <laughs> <laughs> and just scout from the road again. And so I got up really early and right. just drove around some of these hills. I could see down into the, the crop fields around the public land. And I was just trying to see, okay, how long do these deer stay out feeding in the morning? When are they going back to bed? Where specifically are they going back to bed? Um, and, you know, are there some other areas of this public that maybe I'm, I didn't realize could be good that are good? So that's what I kind of tried to figure out. And I found another field on the other side of the property um, that hadn't had deer in it when I showed up in July and did have some bucks in it this morning. That you know, This was like a Sunday morning, I think. So I was like, okay, hey, there's an option two, option B on this piece. Um, but then I also saw a bunch of deer on my main section uh, going back into bed on the public. So what were these uh, food sources that these deer were heading out into? Yeah, it was just a great big giant alfalfa field um, with handful okay. of trees in the middle and some little grassy breaks and stuff in, in and around there, but mostly just 
big open alfalfa field um, that they were is that uh, is there a lot was the numbers I mean from you know just from a number standpoint were are there a lot of deer did you see a lot of deer while you were hunting out there yeah so that was a big difference between a lot of other places I've hunted just a lot of deer like way more deer than I'm used to seeing most other places. So they've got the the cool thing about at least this area, and I think it's relatively consistent in a lot of good parts of Montana, is that there are very high deer numbers, and there's really a really great buck to doe ratio because there's just not very many hunters. So it's not like here in Michigan where all the bucks you know year and a half old or anything are getting shot. So in Michigan, you know there's like one buck to every five does or something crazy like that. I mean it's it's horrible. But out here, it's like one-to-one. I saw just as many, if not more, bucks than I saw does and a very evenly distributed age structure. So I saw year-and-a-half-olds. I saw lots of two-and-a-half-year-olds. I saw lots of three, four. Um, so you're seeing, you know, lots of nice bucks. So just from, like, a enjoyment standpoint, it was a blast just seeing a lot of deer and seeing a lot of, like, nice-looking bucks that would, like, at least get your heart pumping enough to, like, pull up your binoculars and say, ooh, is that a shooter? Um so that's right. what I was seeing. So it rained. Day two started off raining in your truck, so you went on a little drive. Did that did that rain let up towards the evening of night two? No. It just kept on pouring. So I scoured in the morning, then I came back to camp. I took a nap in the truck, tried to I did a little writing. Um, and then around I think one thirty or maybe two, I decided to go try to find this new spot and so based on what I'd seen the first night um, I was thinking these deer were coming out south of me and there was a change in wind direction that kind of compelled me to to have to go even farther south to to be able to hunt without having my wind blow back to where I thought these deer might be bedded so I drove to the other side of the section parked my truck put another stand and sticks on my backpack throw my rain gear and hiked out to this new area crossed the river found another stand again that I thought I could get into and see this area better. And this spot, this time I could see the fields much better than I could night number one because now my goal is, okay, I know they're not way far up north where I was. How far south are they? That's what I wanted to figure out. So now I'm on the far south part of the property trying to confirm where in the middle is this action happening. And it didn't take long for me to figure that out. Um, Literally, I'm hanging the stand still. And it's maybe 3 o'clock, maybe 3.30, I don't know, pouring rain. And um, I'm hanging the stand, and I look out across the field over by where I was hunting on the first night, and here's, like, six bucks coming out into the field. I'm like, son of a gun. Um, (laughs) And that was kind of the big lesson from that night. I didn't see hardly anything down by where I was hunting, like two does, all the deer, like, like 40 deer or more, including, I don't know, 15 bucks, maybe more. All of them were coming out into the northern section of the field um, near where I was hunting the first night, although maybe not ultimately right by there. Um, and what I kind of found is that the, the reason why that was happening is that that section of the field was lush green alfalfa still. The section down the south had been cut and was like all dried up and, and the deer weren't feeding down there. So... Right. So that was what I took away from that. Oh, and I saw two bucks that, like, for sure, I was like, okay, those are for sure shooters. There were a bunch of, like, tweener bucks, and then there was two that I saw, like, okay, those, definitely nice big body, you know, representative, nice, respectable buck. Um, So I, again, felt good, and I knew that those bucks were coming out somewhere in this region. And I'd say it's like a, I don't know, like 100 to 100, maybe like 150-yard tall like north to south section of field that is that comes out of this adjacent public land um so then that 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 left i snuck out that night and i had a game plan of the fact that okay i need to move back north but i think i need to make one final tweak okay so the next question i have for you is in regards to where these deer are coming out the bedding area the you know the ending food source where they were going how big of an area were you playing with here in terms of acres? Hmm. You know, the the whole large section was probably a couple hundred acres, um, maybe. Okay. Um, but the actual small area that I was focused on couldn't have been well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's less than that. Maybe maybe we're talking like a hundred acre area total. But the micro region that I was focusing on was really like probably oh gosh, maybe like 20 acres 
Um, because really I was focused, I was hunting right on the edge of the private land and the public land. So right in the edge of the cover and the food. Um, and then it was just like a, maybe like 400 yards wide from North or 400 yards long from North to South maybe. And then, you know, covers on the West side, foods on the East side. And I was just working my way up and down that line from North to South, trying to figure out where is the transition point, where are they coming through the most? Um, and then, you know, uh, there was... I don't know how deep the deer were into the cover that they were bedded, but one of the main things I found on night number one is that they were not bedded right in the edge. So I could move up and down that transition line safely early in the day without needing, without worrying about spooking deer. So that gave me confidence for the next right. day that I could sneak in there and, and hang a new stand and just make that small adjustment because I didn't need to worry about spooking deer. As long as I was in there early, um, I will point out that every night, the deer were moving super early. I mean, by like three o'clock, probably every day, three, three thirty, somewhere around there, um, there were deer heading out to feed, which was pretty surprising to me compared to most other places I hunt. Um, but you know, these, these deer aren't pressured too much. And another interesting thing that I noticed was the moon time. You know, we've talked to a lot of different people about the moon time. Um, I picked up the 2016 version of the moon guide, you know, that Adam Hayes and Joe Miles and guys like that talk about. And that just shows you the overhead and underfoot times for the moon. And yep. as as we talked about, you know, what a lot of people believe is that when the overhead or underfoot time for the moon coincides with that last couple hours of daylight or first couple hours of daylight in the morning, that can lead to increased day movement. Well, that was happening during this week that I was hunting. So I think those first couple of days, the red moon time was like 3.30, 3.45, and then day three was 4.20 something. Um, so, wow. so, you know, it just could be circumstance, you know, it could have been coincidence maybe, but at least in this case, the deer movement times coincided very closely with that moon time. So that was kind of an interesting thing I saw. All right. So it's it's night three like you're getting ready to go set up on on night three right um you didn't bump any deer going in um your setup are how long how long was it taking you to set up and uh how long between from the time that you started you know you got rested in the stand until you were seeing deer yeah so i want to take i want to rewind just a little bit and and describe how i got to that point um, because, okay. because so like I said, on night number two, I saw these deer were farther up North, but you know, that night I sat there thinking, okay, I've got a tree stand up there already that I could just walk in and hunt, but I wasn't right. seeing the mature, but I wasn't seeing the big bucks come by that location. Now I knew that part of that could be because those guys came walking through and spooked some of those deer. So that could be the reason why I didn't see the shooter box or I also knew that I could not see very far south of me from that stand because of these different trees in the way that I couldn't trim out at all. So I knew that there were deer moving through that I couldn't see between me and the river. I was probably about 100 yards from the river. I was 100 yards north of the river, and I heard a lot of deer splashing through the river, and I, I'd seen you know these other deer pop out into the field. that I never knew where they came from, but I knew that they must have come out somewhere around there. So I sat there thinking, well, I could hunt the easy stand that's already there, or... I could bring in another stand and set up a new stand like 60 yards or 50 yards south of where I hunted that first night. So I ended up deciding to do that because, you know, you know, with a short amount of time, you just got to be a little more aggressive and make things happen. Um, and I thought, right, given the wind direction I had, which was west-northwest, um, given the wind direction and given what I'd seen on night number one, number two, my hypothesis was that there were deer filtering all throughout this little section. But the bigger bucks were probably bedded in what looked like the very best cover, which is right along the edge of that river. So if that was the case, that means they are probably the deer that were, where they were traveling these trails parallel to the river. That was my hypothesis. And with the wind direction I had, it was going to blow me, blow my wind out to the west and a little bit, you know, down to the south. And that would allow any deer that came out that way, it would allow that wind to be hopefully just cutting south of them. That was my hope and my thought. So I grabbed another stand of sticks, and the rain just finally stopped around noon. So it was nice and wet, so I could go in there quietly. But because of this west-northwest wind, I had to be careful about how I accessed it because 
I didn't want my wind to blow down into the cover to the south of me because I'm accessing from the north. And so that wind wanted to be pushed down into the cover where they're bedded. So I've got my tree stand. I've got my sticks. I've got my camera gear. I've got a pole saw. I've got all sorts of crap, my bow, my all that crap. And I'm loaded down. So I have to walk way out. Around. I walk up to the road, basically, and I walk the edge of the road way, way, way far north away from the property and the cover to make sure I don't blow my wind into there. Circle around, get into the, the bottom, the river bottom area, and I just took my sweet time. And I was just really careful and really quiet, and it was like 1.30 in the afternoon, so I thought I was in there early enough, and got down to the edge of the, close to the edge of the river, and when I got to this area I wanted to be, I was torn between two different trees. Um, kind of just, there weren't great trees. All the trees here, um, interestingly, have just got like clusters of like I don't know if they're willows or some kind of shrubby, brushy thing that's just thick as heck, coming out from all the bases of these trees. So every tree I wanted to get into required like an enormous amount of trimming to even get a set of sticks on the tree. It was like just so thick. Um, and a lot of it was dead brush, like dead limbs. So it made a lot of noise when you're trying to like push your way into there. <laughs> so I just had to painstakingly try to trim out a little section of this brush so that I could get my sticks up on that tree. Um, but the one thing I did have going for me was like I said, it had rained. So the grass was quiet and then it was still kind of windy. It was pretty windy actually. So I had some stuff disguising my sound. So long story short, I tried to be as quiet as I could and got the sticks up, got up in the stand. And I'll tell you what, Dan, like as soon as I got in that tree and like looked to see, okay, exactly at what I could see from this tree stand. I like, I literally got shakes. Like I was shaking. and I got nervous in my stomach. Like it was the spot. And I just had this very, very, very physical feeling that this was the spot. I've had that happen twice before. The night before I killed Jawbreaker, or shot Jawbreaker and eventually killed him, you know the story. Um, and then the night that I went in last year on October 1st and killed my buck in Michigan. Those two times I felt like dead on, this is the killing tree, this is the killing night. And it actually panned out. And now this third time. Um, and so I was just like, whoa, this is the spot. Because here's what this spot was, Dan. I was in this cluster of trees, a small tree, but a cluster of trees around me with lots of cover. And then, like I said, there was this like shrubby, nasty growth all underneath me. And what I did is I, I didn't put my tree stand too high. I just situated enough that like my lower body was still covered by those shrubs. Just my upper half was above it. So you couldn't see me basically at all if I was sitting down. Just if I stood up, I could shoot over it to most anything around me. So I had awesome cover. And then to the north of me, I could see this grassy field, this kind of tall grassy field that I had been able to watch the first night, but I could see more of it now. And I had a number of trails converging within about 15 yards of me, all converging down to a low spot in the fence between the private and the public. So there's deer funneling that way to cross there. Okay. And then to the south of me, I had the river about 40 yards away, 45 yards away the river was. And then I had several trails running parallel between me and the river. So any deer that wanted to travel through this area basically were pinched down around me on either side and my wind was blowing parallel to those trails so they would either be north of me or south of me but hopefully it would be you know not it wouldn't be any kind of like direct wind type situation so I felt really good about it and now to answer your question you asked like 10 minutes ago as I'm hanging my camera up like my camera arm I catch a glimpse of movement like almost right underneath me and here's a uh, like a two-year-old eight-pointer 20, 25 yards away while I'm still getting set up. And so I'm like, crap, he must have seen me. So I'm just frozen. But he's just kind of looking around. And then he he beds. He beds down 20, 25 yards away from me. And I'm like, well, crap, now I can't move. So I'm stuck there hoping. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awful because I still don't have my stuff ready. I think my bow is in the tree, but my camera gear is not set up. I've got my extra warm layer still hanging on limbs because I hadn't put those on yet. Um but finally, another buck comes through. The first buck stands up. They'll slowly walk off. They walk down, cross into the field, and they do get into my wind. So now I'm like, okay, this is the moment of truth. Are they going to wind me, or will my scent control program work again? And, you know, luckily, the the whole you know the whole system that I that I apply, which you know about, you know, I spray down with scent away. I put nose jammer on my boots and my tree, and I use Ozonix machine. Um, that all worked because they got to my windstream. They stood there for a second, sniffed around, and then just kept on going. So that was like a huge sigh of relief. And um, 
I finally was able to get my camera gear set up, got my bow on the hanger, and I got kind of situated. I said, okay, now now things are going to happen. So, so that's where I'll leave things off. Was there any terrain features? I know you're, you were talking about a river bottom. Uh, it's fairly flat in river bottoms, but were, was there any like little uh, drainages in that area that you were hunting or any terrain features that, you know, kind of, you know, brought the deer to your location that may have funneled them or, or, or made it as a pinch point of some sort? So, yeah, to your point, there was not a whole lot of major terrain variation at all uh, down in the area I was hunting. I guess it was it was high on either side, so it was kind of like a big bowl. Um, you've got hills on either side, and then down in the bottom is this, this river, and then, you know, like I said, like a 400-yard wide swath of this flatland down in this bottom where the river runs through and then all this cover was. And then on the east side was the food. So where I was actually hunting was pretty flat. Um, so the only really funneling features was the cover itself. Um, and so within that cover, like I said, there was patchy mixes of tall grass, cottonwood trees, and then this brushy, willowy, bushy, shrubby crap. Um, so what seemed to happen is that they were, they were bedded in that very thickest stuff. But they would travel into the openings, but typically were kind of along some of those edges. But what I really saw was actually from the maps and then confirmed when I was on the ground. But even on the maps, um, you know, I, I got a Huntera map from uh, from Ben and those guys made up for this piece of public since it was my number one option from that map. And then from looking at some different online options, too, even before I had that map, you could actually see trails from the aerial view where these deer were, were using a lot. So I knew a couple of these areas, and I, so based on that, I knew that there seemed to be a lot of trails paralleling the river, and then there was a couple more just north of that. Um, and now I was situated right between those two spots. Um, and it seemed like those were the main main features and why exactly they you know use a couple of those trails in the middle of the grassy area, I'm not quite sure. Um, but that's kind of what I was seeing. All right. So two bucks right away before your gear ever, uh, you know, you, you finish setting up. Did you get it? I mean, as those two bucks worked their way away from you out into that field, did more deer automatically start coming out or did you have time to, to get situated? So I had time to get situated, but not very much. Um, I, I had just gotten things situated and then the, the kind of parade started little bucks, does a little buck a couple more does um but i'm situated i'm watching you know i'm, I'm just, a few of them go south of me enough that they get back into my wind again i get nervous but i pass the test again so i'm like okay like so far so good this this plan is working out and i'm sitting there i can't remember exactly what i was doing i think i was watching this doe and fawn that had gone out into the field and i happened to just catch a little glimpse of something underneath me like a little flash movement and I look down there and there's a big buck literally right underneath me but like I told you <laughs> there's this brush and so like you can see him right. but there, there's no way I could shoot him and you know all these deer had been going from west to east heading out to feed he was going from east to west back into the cover and I'm like crap so he'd already walked past me I never heard him I never saw him, and then something happened they didn't like. Maybe he caught me moving, maybe he winded me, and now he's jogging back into the cover. And it happened in a flash. You know, I saw him, I spun around to try to grab my bow, and, and he was running away by then, and he disappeared. And so I just, I was, I was pretty pissed because, like, I had made the move. It had worked out. I had put myself in this position on day three. I had a shooter at five yards, and I didn't even know it, and I blew it. <laughs> and that was so, like that was like 345 what was this buck you know what was this buck i th so that night before night number two one of the big deer i had seen out there in the field was a really tall dark horned eight pointer titan tall dark horned eight pointer with a really big body and he was like the best buck i had seen that night so he was the one i wanted well wh what i remember when i looked down at this buck right underneath me is that he had tall brow tines and a tight tall frame so i was like it's that buck. Okay. So I thought this was that nice, tall eight pointer, maybe like 130, 
big bodied, you know, it could have been a four year old or five year old, just a cool looking buck. Um, that's what I thought he was. So I was pretty bummed out that potentially the, the, the top buck that I'd seen so far had been right there. And, uh, I did not do what I was supposed to do with it. All right. So that you said that was three forty-five, roughly. So you had what three hours of hunting light left? Yeah, yeah. And um, and it, and I'll I'll just continue actually, because you know I'm pissed off about that. And then like a minute later, maybe two minutes later, as I'm sitting there, like, oh my gosh, how did I miss that? Like, how could I not hear him? And well, the reason I couldn't hear him is because it was just so windy. Like you just couldn't hear any deer movement. So I decide, okay, I just cannot. I can't stay still. Like I need my head swiveling at all times because there's so many deer moving through here. I need to make sure I spot one of these bucks come through, especially on that one section where that, where that buck had been. I had a very, very small window that maybe I'm not sure, but he might've walked through the small window. Um, so I needed to make sure that if another buck came through, I spotted him before he got into the cover right underneath me. So I'm just head on a swivel back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And like two minutes later, bam, here comes a little buck, a doe, a doe, big buck, big bodied, heavy horned eight pointer, not like a huge frame, but just like a nice, heavy, big bodied eight pointer. I'm like, all right, here we go. So I grab my bow, turn on my camera, start filming him. And he's at like 60 yards. And then he comes in the 55, 53. And I'm like, okay, he's going to keep angling in towards me. But then he stopped at 52 and he just stood there kind of looked around and the other deer were filtering out and and then they all started crossing the fence right there at 52 yards so they weren't coming to the closer trails so i wait hoping maybe he'll come my way he turns starts going towards the fence i do one light contact grunt he doesn't hear it i try again a little louder he hears it he looks up takes like two steps my direction keeps looking around and then he turns hops the fence and keeps going and I wasn't going to do any kind of crazy aggressive calling because it's so early. You know, I just thought maybe I could get him to you know check it out based on curiosity if I did a couple light contact grunts. But if that wasn't going to work, I didn't want to spook all the deer. So I watched him feed out into the field away from me. And off he goes. And a few more deer filtered through. Same story. And for the next like 45 minutes, I'm like on edge. Like I said, constantly looking. Didn't want to miss a deer. But. At about that, like, I don't know, it was like 4 o'clock or 4.10, somewhere around there. I don't know, give or take, somewhere around this general region. I, I needed to, like, commiserate. So I texted a couple of my buddies in Michigan, and it was like, ugh, I just blew it. Like, I just gave them the update. Like, I just totally screwed up. And as I'm texting that, the first time I take my attention off of the area around me, as I'm texting, I happen to catch a glimpse of movement off the left of my eye again, and bam, here's a nice eight-pointer again. So I'm like, crap, spin around, look at him, looks like a shooter, grab my bow, turn on the camera, zoom in, grab my rangefinder, and then I'm like, uh, maybe not. I don't think he's, I don't think he's mature. He might've been a three-year-old, maybe a two-year-old, kind of iffy in the in-between. And I was like, you know what? If I don't immediately want to shoot him, then I'm, I'm going to pass him. Like if he's not a for sure shooter, I'm not going to shoot right. him. So I just sat there watching him and filmed him a little bit and then he keeps looking over his shoulder and I keep looking back there trying to see what he's looking at and he's now he's it, he's doing two things he's looking over his shoulder and then he's sniffing the ground around him and that's because he's standing right in the trail I walked to my tree stand but luckily you know what we've said a thousand times that nose jammer really seems to do the trick because he kept sniffing around sniffing around he smelled it but didn't know what the heck it was never smelled me and he just continued on his way so he looks over his shoulder again. I look again, and then I see the dark, big-bodied, tight, tall, chocolate-horned eight-pointer. And I say, that's the one. At that point, I see him. I'm like, that's the big eight from last night. Maybe it's the same one I saw earlier that you know ran past me underneath my stand. Turn the camera back on, spin, grab the bow, spin back around so I can get to the other side of the tree, and now I'm in shoot mode. And I'm just waiting for the smaller eight point to move off so that the big one will follow him. And long story short, I'll cut right to the chase here and keep this simple. The smaller eight pointer moved off. The big eight pointer walked past, came just out from behind this tree. I drew back. He walked through at like 15, 20 yards. And I just waited till he naturally stopped. 
He was slightly quartering away. I settled the pin, released, arrow went right through his heart, and he took off running. And then I had a mini meltdown in the tree. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So many emotions just went through my, like through my head. Like I'm, j- I just, I'm jacked for you. I'm, I'm pumped for you. But now I'm jacked for the rest of the hunters and myself. You know, because you know, majority of the Midwest has to wait until you know later in september or october but uh i'm dude that's awesome congrats thank you man it was crazy it was like in that did you watch him drop well that was the funny thing is that no i didn't see him drop because so i shoot he goes running off and like i mentioned there's this tree in between me and this larger grassy area and they all the deer, him, that smaller buck, and a couple does that ended up walking up that I never knew were there, they all go running behind this tree. So I, I, I follow them up to the tree, and then they disappear behind the tree, and then I see a deer run out the other side of it. And so I just locked onto them, and I saw one that seemed to have like a shaky butt. You know, as he was running, he'd just kind of be like kind of drunkenly swerving. So I'm like, that's him. And then he hits, yep. gets to this ditch line, looks like he kind of tumbled into the ditch, like it took a weird jump, but then I saw a deer jump out the other side. So I'm like, crap, like how did he, I thought that was a perfect shot. He should have been down. So I wait a while, you know, I post social media or whatever. And then I get down, check the arrow. Arrow looks great. Everything looks good. And you know, this is stupid. You shouldn't do this, but I was so excited and so confident about the shot. I was like, you know what? I know he got to that ditch and there's this little opening in the brush along the ditch. I was like, I know he got to there. I think he couldn't have gone very much further than that. So I'm just going to skip ahead to the ditch, find blood at the ditch right where I know he crossed, and then he's got to be just on the other side. So I go walking over there, and I start looking at the ditch, and I look past the ditch, and I don't see anything. I start looking for blood. I don't see anything. And I'm like, man, this is weird. Now, we've talked about... That's a rookie mistake, Kenyon. I know. That's pretty bad, right? (laughs) I was so dang excited. Right. Um, but you know, I, I don't see blood as well as some people because I've got a little bit of red green color blindness. So I can see red and green just fine, but sometimes in like certain lighting or when they're contrasted against each other, they don't pop out as much. So like red, red blood on green grass or brush, it doesn't pop for me. Like it does for other people. Like I'll be with friends and they see blood from a longer distance than me. And it just, it it shows up a lot easier for them. For me, I've got to like focus in on a spot and then, Oh, there it is. So I'm like thinking in my head, gosh, like there should be an easy blood trail, but I'm an idiot and my genetics have forced me to suck at blood trailing and I'm not like, what's going on here? How come I can't find this deer? So after like looking back and forth along this ditch, just trying to find a speck of blood so I can start after like, I don't know, 15 minutes or something. I find like, you know, stop being an idiot, go back to the beginning. So I decided to walk back to where the arrow was and start from the beginning. And I'm, as I'm walking back though, I've got my eyes on the ground, you know, just kind of hoping maybe I'll randomly come across some blood as I walk back. And I'm walking, 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 and then like 10 yards in front of me, I see this big brown blob. And I look up, <laughs> and there he is. He had died like 60, 70 yards away from the tree stand just behind that tree right away. And he just dropped, and I couldn't see it, and I had no idea he was right there the whole time. That's and that was that. hilarious. And that was that. He was right there. Well, but this isn't where the story ends, is it? Uh, well, I guess what what do you specifically mean? Because not completely, but well, you found the deer, right? And uh, you had to drag him back to your truck. But did you forget something? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so in my excitement, you know, of of surprisingly coming across the buck there, you know, I I immediately, you know, and this is in the aftermath. I realized what I did. But when I spotted the buck. I set my bow down and then I ran over to the buck and I got my camera out and I filmed the you know recovery and was all happy, happy, blah, blah, blah. And then at that point, then I realized, holy smokes, I have so much work to do tonight still because I'm all on my own. I've yeah. got to, I've got to get back to my camp, get my other camera, drop off all this other crap and then come back and try to take some photos and try to do some stuff like that while it's still daylight. And then of course I got to clean them out and then drag them back all by myself through this like nasty stuff. And, um, I was like, man, this is gonna be a lot of work. So I'm like rushing around just trying to do all this stuff. So I get the buck clip, well, no, I get the camera, come back, take photos, video, got him, 
I had bought this little thing called like a, a deer slayer or something. It's basically just like a, a roll up piece of plastic that you can use yeah. as kind of like a sled to kind of get them out a little bit easier. And I'm glad I had that. Um, it's not perfect, but it definitely made it a little easier to drag them out on my own because it was a long drag. And like I said, it was flat. Yeah. It was relatively flat in the bottom ground, but to get out and back to camp, I had to come out of the bowl and then go up this big hill and then it's just up and down, up and down, up and down hills all the way out to the top where my camp was. So it was a rugged drag out and it was, it was exhausting. Um, so I get back to camp finally with the buck. It's after dark. It's like, I don't know. I shot that buck at like four something and I got him back to camp at like, I don't know, 10 30, somewhere around there. So I'm zonked and I'm like getting stuff around in camp and thinking about what am I going to make for dinner? And then I think to myself, where's my bow? And I look around <laughs> camp. Did I set it down on the table? Did I set it on the ground? I cannot find my bow. I lost my freaking bow. So I was kind of panicky that night. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, did I, like, set it down where I parked my truck? Like, did I run over my bow somewhere? Did I leave it out in the middle of the woods somewhere? So I thought about just going out right then at night and trying to find it, but it was dark and I was whooped. So I thought, okay, I'll go out first thing in the morning. Cause I had to go out and pull down my tree stands anyways. So, so that's what I did. I waited till first light the next day, snuck back out there. And I, the first place I decided to go was back where I saw the deer. Yeah. Where I found the buck. Cause I started thinking, well, maybe I had it and dropped it there. And that's what I did. I'd set it down right next to the buck or not right next to it, about 15 yards away from it. And, uh, there it was covered in frost and, uh, got my bow and pulled down my tree stands and hurried back up to the truck and drove back to town and dropped off the deer at the taxidermist. And that was that. Because, because you're not, you're not coming back. Right. So you, you that, that bow kind of, uh, finding it was probably a big relief because you weren't coming back or you didn't have a backup bow, uh, cause you're going right to the mountains for elk right now, right? Right, yeah. I was like, I really need to find this stupid thing because I'm going to have a really boring <laughs> week. I'm going to have a boring week in the mountains if I don't have a bow out there. So, so yeah, right. I uh, I found that and got back in the town, and I dropped off the buck at the processor to get the meat taken care of and took the uh, took the skull to a taxidermist here to get a Euro mount done because he can't bring back a full skull with brain matter and all that kind of good stuff into it into Michigan. Um, right. So, right. so I uh, had had that taken care of out here, and then I'm um, now I'm here in in Bozeman, and I'm all I'm all ready to rock. Now, funny story, I had so much fun out there that originally my plan was to hang out here in town um, until I go elk hunting and just like fly fish for a couple days and do some work. But I got to thinking today, you know, it'd just be fun to go back to my spot and just hang a stand and watch these deer and film these deer. So I th- actually think after we get off the air here tonight, I'm going to drive back to my original spot and just sit out there for a couple of days and watch and take some pictures and video and just kind of enjoy deer yeah. as a spectator. Heck yeah. I think uh, that's an awesome thing to do because, you know, if you ever want to come back to Montana uh, and do some, you know, do some hunting in that air in that particular area, you're going to know, you're going to have a great idea. You're going to be able to even, even just a night or two as a spectator, you're going to learn, you know, so much more about that property. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep, keep learning. And, uh, maybe I can take a, a thing or two away from that and apply it to a future year. Cause this is definitely the kind of spot I'd be interested in coming again. I mean, it was just, it was a lot of fun. I saw a lot of deer. There were right. nice bucks and beautiful, beautiful area. And, um, you know, not a lot of other people. There were those two guys that one night, but that was it. Um, so Man, it was just a super cool experience, and you know, coming into it, I knew it was gonna be it was gonna be a big challenge. I, to be honest, was like a little intimidated. I was like, wow, this is like a lot of new stuff, like new state, new time of year. I've never hunted this time of year. I've I've never done a big out of state trip that was 100% dependent on public land. Um, so a lot of new things, and I, you know, I did not know if for sure I'd be able to pull it off. Um, so having actually been able to do it, you know, in three days and make the right adjustments and moves and stuff was, it was really, um, I don't know. It was just, it was really fulfilling and fun. And I'm, I'm very proud of having been able to do that and have this trip. And it was just a cool experience too. 
Now, my question is, you know, you've hunted other states, right? Um, But the trip is just, I mean, from Michigan where you live to Iowa, what's that, six hours? Uh, Yeah, to the edge of Iowa is about six hours. So now from where you live to where you hunt, was that like, what was that, a 20-hour drive? 23-hour drive. 23. So what, is there, is there a difference? going even further than that i mean what did you have any expectations going into this going into this hunt uh i mean were you okay with failing i mean as the hunt would have gotten closer to an end were you going to go for a lower caliber buck were you going to shoot a doe what was your what was your goal yeah so like I, you know, like I just said, going into it, I knew it was going to be a big challenge. So because of that, right. I was, I was pretty focused on like just trying to have a great experience and like look at it as like an, an adventure and a learning opportunity. Um, right, right. So, so I had relatively low expectations, um, but I also thought I was definitely, I definitely thought I put myself in a position that I could succeed. I just wasn't going to be bummed if I didn't. Um, so I went into it saying I wanted to shoot a mature representative buck. So, you know, like I talked about earlier, a nice buck that was at least three to four years old. Um, I wasn't going to hold out for something crazy big, crazy old. Um, just want to get a nice buck. If I could pull that off with all these things, I was going to be really happy. Um, and then I just wanted to like enjoy the whole trip. You know, it wasn't just about killing a buck. It was also about being in Montana and camping for a week and being in a yeah. new beautiful place. And, you know, just like kind of some like solo, time, you know, being on a trip 100% by myself, lots of time to just kind of think and figure it out on my own. Um, so that was kind of my goal is to just enjoy it, learn it, learn the area, try something new and just see if I could like put myself into this new situation and figure it out. Um, that was what the goal was. That's what my thoughts were. Um, as far as like, you know, the type of deer or deer herd, I'd say it kind of lived up to expectations in that way. Like my thought was that, you know, in Montana or some of these Western states, there's lots of deer, there's lots of nice bucks. Um, and you know, early season, you can get on them with their, you know, bed to feed pattern. And that's kind of what happened. Um, that's what I saw. That's what happened. So it was a lot of fun from that standpoint, just because it was a, there was a lot of action. You, You were always seeing deer and that's a lot of fun, especially at the beginning of the year when you're just stoked to be out there, to be able to be out there and to see a lot of deer and a lot of bucks that like get you excited. That was that was awesome. Well, yeah, that whole western hunt, you know, has all has always sparked my interest. But now going west for whitetails just seems to me like it's another reason just to go out west. So it's you got you sparked my interest with this. Oh yeah, man. It's uh, I think uh, the only, the only issue with me going on all these, you know, I try to go to new places as often as I can. The only issue with that is that I find these spots and I like them so much. I'm like, Oh, I'm going back there every year. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Cause now I'm like, <laughs> well, I want to elk hunt somewhere every year. And now I want to go whitetail hunt in a Western state every year. And Oh, I want to do this Midwestern state and that Midwestern state. And Oh, I really want to go Alaska someday. And man, I, I can't do it all. But, uh, man, there's, there's a lot of cool opportunities out there for hunters. If you're willing to try new things and, um, you know, put some time and in, in work into it. That's, that's something I've definitely learned that you, you do not need a lot of money and an outfitter or lease or something like that to go have a quality out of state hunting trip. I mean, over the last like 10 years or whatever it's been, I've gone to so many different States all over the country. Now I've gone East, I've gone Midwest, I've gone far West and I've done it all on my own. And I'm, you know, between the age of like 22 and now 29, I don't have a lot of money. It's not like I've got some big paying job. I've been able to pull it off by sleeping in my truck or sleeping in a $40 hotel room and just figuring things out. And, you know, some schmuck like me has been able to go to these places and not always kill deer or not always kill giant deer or whatever, but I've been able to go out there and have fun and see nice deer and have great whitetail experiences. And I think that's another big confirming thing for me out of this trip is just that anyone can do it. You know, if you're willing to put some time and energy and maybe sacrifice some some fancy things at home so you can have a little extra money to buy a non-resident tag and pay for gas, um, you can do this kind of stuff. Anyone can do this kind of stuff. Right. Right. Well, congrats, Mark. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. 
and I appreciate you uh, dealing with our technical difficulties here today to to try to talk through this. It's been a little bit of a challenge, and it's not our our best sounding podcast ever. But um, right, but hey, right. you're in Iowa with a crappy computer issue, and I'm in Montana <laughs> in a parking lot, and uh, we're making it work, right? <laughs> well, I think I think the listeners always have kind of low. Ex- expectations for this podcast anyway so uh you know they're they're okay with it and what's perfect is that when you said low expectations you cut out right at that moment so (laughs) it's it's right i think that's a sign yeah i think it's a (laughs) i think that's a perfect sign so we'll wrap this episode up we'll be back here soon with regular higher quality audio episodes soon um before we close it out though really quickly of course, need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So thank you to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Big thanks to those guys. And finally, thank you all for listening to this interesting uh, interesting podcast in one way or another and for following along with my hunt uh, You know, on the blog and social media and all that kind of stuff. I've gotten so many... Um, messages and tweets and emails and stuff of all of you guys supporting me on this trip and rooting me on so thank you for that thanks for listening and of course as always stay wired to hunt outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.